Ken Mifelcha, welcome to On Crombie Hob podcast for June 28, 2023. Hello again, my name is Terrence O'Donnell and I'm back for another episode of News from Around the World and an op-ed about something that may or may not be important to you depending on what you care about. In this once a week podcast, now being hosted on RSS.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Intunes, and a few others. I try to offer you news feeds and blog writers from around the world that you may or may not have heard of yet. News stories that you might see and a lot of them you might not see. Blog articles, typically, probably not. So a little about me. I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Shanahay, a Gaelic storyteller. And I want this podcast to feel like we are sitting under the Ankrambiha, which is Gaelic for the Tree of Life, which is typically the village oak tree. Sitting under this imaginary tree together, I showcase headlines, relevant blog articles about climate change, racism, politics, and human interest pieces not found on the front page news, and why I think these stories are relevant to the world we live in now. A little bit more about me is that my family originally comes from the northwest coast of, of Northern Ireland, and the, as the story goes, Oliver Cromwell destroyed our hill fort scattered us to the winds, and as you can see, we're all over the world now. But I still bring you, uh, you know, this flair here uh, to go back to my roots. So the big thing about this podcast is I want it to be a friendly space to promote my activism and addressing the wrongs of the world, hopefully without offending anyone. This podcast is also free to subscribe to for anyone who cares to listen. Now, I don't want to get any money involved with this. I don't do any any kind of advertising or paid stuff like that because that's not what this show is all about. I want to get people to get up off their chairs and make a difference in the world before it gets too late. We're almost there. But I do offer option an option for donations of subscriptions within my written online stories and in the articles I put out on medium.com and Substack. Much like passing the hat at the end of every, every visit to your imaginary digital village. Just to let you know, I'll be taking a break once I've delivered the headlines to you. During this break, I do promote web, my website, Ankrambiha, and my stories and articles published in Medium and Substack in short to one to make clip. This week, I've got stories about all the things I typically rant about, climate change, racism, LGBTQ injustices around the world, and some politics that it could affect the whole world. And in my op-ed about the planet we live on and a fictional story I'm going to read to you about the planet protecting itself from greedy humans. I also want to give special thanks to all those listeners around the world. As I only speak English and some French. Merci beaucoup des fois d'écouter mon podcast. J'espère que vous continuez. And I, what that means in English is I thank you very much for listening to the podcast and I hope you continue. So here's the headlines that I picked out for you this week. My first story goes back about a week, and it's entitled, The Conservative Culture War is Infecting Canadian Politics. Can the LGBTQ plus community catch a break? From Sam W. Now she wrote this in Medium.com, and she's a Canadian LGBTQ plus writer. Pretty much says it all right here in this article. Why do the LGBTQ plus communities around the world have to all be political footballs being kicked around by the politicians, getting people all worked up over nothing. Why can't they be accepted like the rest of the world? Oh, I forgot. Other people aren't accepted either. 
We just happen to pick on the most vulnerable, typical bullies, stupid humans. My next article, well-funded Christian group behind U.S. effort to roll back LGBTQ plus rights. Advocacy groups condemn alliance defending freedom as a danger to every American who values their freedoms. This was in The Guardian by Adam Gabbard out of New York. The story is about a Christian right-wing group called the Alliance Defending Freedom and how they are at the center of the culture war against LGBTQ plus and other peoples, trying to strip them of their rights. This, is, this also includes abortion rights. They are well-funded and working behind the scenes. This group is very dangerous for any Americans who value their freedoms. And John Tom Hartman also mentioned them in an article, which I will showcase at the end of this section here. Um, you know, it's a, it also he all touch, touches based on these people. My next article: support for same-sex marriage falls as right intensifies war on trans. Let me tell you why that matters to me, and I hope it matters to you. By James Finn, again another article uh, by an LGBTQ writer in Medium.com. It's a poignant story about this man's journey through time as seen through the eyes of a gay man. And this is in, you know, takes place in the last few decades. Now he talks about how things are moving backwards. Now I remarked to him about how it's all about power and money and the idea that these men from the GOP are using their holy book like a shillelagh to scare the masses of poor and uneduc uneducated into giving them the power that they crave. Next article, more LGBTQ stuff, because I picked out a bunch of them this week. And this one is um, a politician from Canada. Poilivier tells Trudeau to butt out on New Brunswick's policy on LGBTQ students. Let parents raise kids, he said, while speaking on controversial changes to policy on LGBTQ students by Arthur White Crummy in CBC News. The war against LGBTQ plus students in New Brunswick is heating up. Seems Canada's Pierre Polivier is taking a page out of the American LGBTQ plus playbook, trying to put a divide between Canada's conservative right and Trudeau, which he really doesn't like at all, and he's been very plain about that. I think he's trying to run for the next premier uh, or pr prime minister. So this is, you know, this is a run up to their future elections, without a doubt. So is the Canadian right going to mirror American red state policies for their provinces? It's starting to look a little more dire for those folks up there. Again, cbc.com. Uh, and I read another article today about this same thing uh, in the CBC, that they're worried that whatever the, the MP for New Brunswick is doing is going to spread across Canada. And this one here is not LGBTQ so much, but it's about abortion. The sleeper legal, legal strategy that could topple abortion bans. Jews, Episcopalians, Unitarians, Satanists, and other people of faith say the laws infringe on their religious rights. And this was in Politico.com by Alice Miranda Olstein. It's a positive story about a group of religious leaders in the United States who are either not Christians or not mainstream evangelical Christians who are trying a different legal strategy to combat abortion laws, saying in suits that these laws violate their ability to practice their religions. It's coming down to when people think a fetus, fetus is viable enough to be characterized as a person, at conception, or when the baby takes its first breath. The evangelicals believe that it's when it's at conception. The other folks here 
believe it's when the baby takes its first breath. And that's the big dividing point here in the United States and some places around the world. My next article is from Jessica Wildfire. Here, she has a very good article here. Do Americans really care about education or do they just pretend on those poor test, te test scores? Another good article about the real reason Americans' children aren't learning anything at school. She gives several reasons and then drops the big one. So I'm not going to give you a lot of details about this article because I think you should read it. I could have given, given it away, but it's like you know giving away a, a plot to a movie. I don't want to do that. You should read this. Republicans aren't even hiding their war on young people. A new GOP budget scheme, scheme would force the next generation to work longer and guarantee them an unlivable planet. This was in the NewRepublic.com by Charlotte Kilpatrick. Story talks about how the Republican Party wants younger people to work longer, past 70 years now, and live on an unlivable planet. This reporter writes about their attempts to abolish Social Security and increase the Social Security benefit age, just for starters. Our longevity has already dropped, making the U.S. the worst country of the wealthiest for age and maternity deaths. Now they want to make things worse in their quest to satisfy their rich donors. And here's the next article, and it's, it starts off with some abortion rights stuff, because this lady in the article here helped kill Roe versus Wade. So the article is entitled, She Helped Kill Roe versus Wade. What Does She Want Now in BBC.com by Holly Hondrick. And it talks about this lady who's made it a mission to do everything she can to turn the United States into a nationwide ban on abortion and gender rights and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's another good read out of BBC. I didn't put a lot of notes in here because, again, it talks a little bit about this one person. Um, you should, you know, if you're interested, you can read it. Again, all this stuff is going to be in the newsletter that comes out with this podcast. Dictatorship. How Hitler, Stalin, and Trump show it's easier than you think in TheGuardian.com by Rich Tenorio. This is a sort of a book review about a graphic novel about how easy it is for countries to devolve into dictatorships. The graphic novel is geared for a younger audience, and that is a good thing. Push the younger generations to wake up and vote out any would-be authoritarians before they do stupid stuff like those in the past. And this is part of what I said last week. I want to promote all this stuff and focus it towards the younger generations. They're the ones who are going to take over for us. I mean, I'm a senior citizen, so you need to take over for me and all my baby boomer people and even some of the less less old as I am in their 50s and stuff. Those of us who are apparently set in our ways and don't like everything else, but you, the younger generations, are making changes. And the more of you that get together and push, you can get changes to make life better. How the war against free lunch targets black school children. Americans can't afford to, to ignore this racist crusade by Allison Wiltz. And again, another article I picked up out of Medium.com. It's a somewhat lengthy blog about how previous administrations have seesawed back and forth about paying for free lunches for public school students. The question at the end of all this is why do we have so much poverty in this? One of the wealthiest countries in the earth. Why can't we feed our people? And that's just it. 
it's all about the will. So obviously, you know, I mentioned something in past podcasts about how the United States is starting to have issues with um, feeding people. We're running out of the bread baskets, running out of wheat fields and all kinds of stuff. But we've had this issue with feeding students in public schools for a while. Schools want to do it. Other ones don't, depending on where the school is. The issue being is somebody doesn't want to pay for it. They don't want the government to pay for it. Well, you know, if you live in a poor red state, I can see why you don't want the government to pay for it. Because it's coming out of your tax dollars. And then the affluent states who don't have a problem spending tax money, they're all about it. So the question is, should it be a national mandate? Do we need to feed kids? There's a lot of kids in the United States right now. And again, I mentioned we're one of the wealthiest countries on the earth. Why do we not? It's not a question of can't. Why don't we want to feed poor children? Why Moms for Liberty deserves to be labeled a hate group? Hate group. They've earned the title by quoting Hitler and banning books. Another article by Allison Wilkes. It's a very good narrative on, narrative on how bad the rhetoric is getting over white Christian nationalism. This article about Moms for Liberty hits it pretty hard. What constitutes a hate group? That depends on who's asking. From a black person's perspective, this group falls right in line. From an evangelical Christian's point of view, they're just a concerned group, parents group that's going national. Like the moms group a while back called MAD, M-A-D-D, Moms Against Drunk Drivers. Are they the same? Depends on who's asking. U.S. Supreme Court rules against Navajo Nation and water rights case. So this is a kind of a climate change, but it's also involving racism to a degree, involving the indigenous people here in this country. Indigenous community has sought to assess water needs amid historic drought in the Colorado River Basin. This came out of Al Jazeera. Sad day for indigenous peoples across the United States. The federal government has decided that the two treaties, one from 1868 and the other one from 1908, do not guarantee that the U.S. will provide water to any of the tribes. They'll assist with the infrastructure, so they say, but not really. But the tribes have to figure out how to get their own water from the earth. Once again, Europeans exercise their powers over the conquered peoples. So the Supreme Court ruled against the Navajos, but this would apply to any other Indian tribes' reservations out there in the southwest and in the west. Where are they going to get their water from? Well, Supreme Court says, we don't care where you get your water from, we're not going to give it to you. And here, there's another article about indigenous people and the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas wants to demolish Indian law. The conservative justice is on a course for an originalist fight with Neil Gorsuch, another justice from the Supreme Court, by Matt Ford. This one came out of the NewRepublic.com. The story details some of the infighting in the background of the U.S. Supreme Court justices over different viewpoints. Justice Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas seem to be at odds with one another over indigenous people's rights in accordance with treaties made in the past. Justice Gorsuch is on the side of the reservations, whereas Justice Thomas appears to want to abolish them, or at least take away their rights as given in, as given in past treaties. All this news about the inside workings of the justice makes me wonder how much longer the court can stand up to all the allegations of corruption and ignorance before the Congress has to step in and corral them. So the reason I say that is because the Congress in the United States 
is basically what tells the Supreme Court what they can and can't do. But they're not doing a very good job of that here lately, as we can see. be interesting to see if they ever step up. And here's another article from, for, about indigenous peoples. Uh, the Highway of Tears. Canada's genocide is not distant history. Truth and reconciliation unveil the skeletons in our nation's claws. This is by Sam W. in Medium.com. And the reason I brought this up is because this is an article about the indigenous people in Canada. It's very well researched by Miss Sam. And, but it's about the Canada's Highway of Tears, Highway 16 in British Columbia, where so many First Nations women and girls have gone missing or murdered by white men, with the RCMP not exactly being too enthusiastic about solving their murders, unless they're white, which there were a couple. You know, I say that only because they had money so they could do something about it. The indigenous people, we had not so much. So this is much like the indigenous tribes here in the U.S., the tribal police here in the U.S. are too few, too few and far between, between, and between the American police, both local, state, and federal, they're apathetic about when, and when it comes to trying to solve murders and MIAs. Because to show you where the white-skinned humans of European descent place their priorities. No such thing as equal justice for all, only justice for one of their own. And here's another article I picked up out of Medium, and this also has to deal with humans in general. Humans kind of suck at adapting. We're actually pretty apathetic by Michael Campy. And this one again out of medium.com. It's a short blog article. It's very to the point and truthful. He writes how humans are not very adaptable anymore. They try to get nature to adapt to them. And look how that's working out for us. He talks about how all that forcible adapting is coming back to bite us now with a lot more to come. Survival of the richest. Not so much it turns out. The ultra-rich vastly overestimate themselves by Jessica Wildfire in Substack.com. Ms. Wildfire strikes again with another home run. This article from June 24th tells it like it is regarding the current state of world affairs and the rich elitist role in it everywhere. She very aptly tells everyone there's no place safe in this world where you can ride out the apocalypse when it comes for us. My response was equally realist. You will not be able to buy your way to safety for yourself and your loved ones. The hungry humans will find you, root you out, and only kill you and only kill you and yours for food and water if you're lucky. If you're not so lucky, they'll kill you and eat you and yours before moving on. Anger in Japan, as report reveals children were forcibly sterilized. Between 1948 and 1996, about 16,500 people were operated on without their consent under a eugenics law triggering long campaigns for redress. This came out of TheGuardian.com by Justin McCurry out of Tokyo. Imagine being forcibly sterilized by your government because they thought your genes or DNA weren't good enough for their idea of what society thinks you should be. This has happened in the U.S. as well, although it is kept on a very low key. There was a report a few months ago of forced sterilization of migrants from south of the border and migrating migrant holding centers. We sterilized indigenous people and black people because we didn't, we, didn't think they're inferior, we didn't like their inferior genes mixing with European genes. Understandably, these Japanese people are upset and want redress. What about the people here in the U.S.? Did they ever get their redress for the wrongs done to them without their consent? Yeah, you think about that. Biden unveils new order to protect access to contraception. 
executive order comes on the eve of one-year anniversary of U.S. Supreme Court ruling rolling back abortion rights. This came out of Al Jazeera. Some good news for women in certain states are more fodder for the right-wing anti-abortionists. Mike Pence being one of the nut jobs running for president. He's all over this with his call for a nationwide ban on abortions after 15 weeks. I'm a woman that barely knows she's pregnant at that point. But it's good. You know, the Biden administration is going to open up access to contraception in everywhere that the states will let him. And this one from Australia. Seismic shift. Younger Australians reject the idea humans have right to use nature for our own benefit, survey shows. Poll also reveals increasing cynicism over environmental claims made by companies. This came out of the Guardian.com environment. A survey in Australia showing that the younger generations are shifting attitudes away from claiming nature for themselves. That seems to be just a boomer attitude that the Gen Y and Gen Z demographics are rejecting, which is a good thing. Will that take off in the U.S. and other places around the world? We can only hope so. New evidence wind farm noise disturbs sleep any, any more than road traffic study finds. Let me, let me say that again. No evidence wind farm noise disturbs sleep any more than road traffic study finds. Five-year Flinders University project played wind turbine and road traffic audio samples to nearly 70 participants in the sleep laboratory. And this one came out of The Guardian and Australian News. It's a story out of Australia. It's news for everyone around the world is complaining about wind farm noise stuff that's disturbing them or complaining about their livestock. I knew a guy once who complained about this noise thing. He had a he had a wind wind vane, or if you want to call it, not too far from his property where I used to live in northern Maine. And he complained about the noise and all the other stuff to go with it, but I think he was just a complainer. Uh, he, the thing is he only had to deal with one mill, one windmill. I'm saying to the world, quit your whining. There's proof here now uh, come from the Australians that this stuff won't hurt you. The fourth leading cause of death in the U.S., cumulative poverty. Reverend William Barber and Greg Gonsalves. This came out of The Guardian. And it's kind of an opinion piece. It's a story about the growing poverty crisis in the U.S. We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world and the, le- and the leading country of all those wealth- wealthy nations in the level of poverty amongst its citizens. Cumulative poverty is seventh on the list of the top 10 leading causes of death in the U.S. now. And it appears to be on purpose to some. As the masses get poorer, the rich keep getting richer. Someday soon, that will change, and likely violently, like a lot of other revolutions in the past. Next one. How do we fight hunger without destroying the environment? Solutions to global hunger often damage the environment. Asaf Dotan argues that these two major issues need to be tackled simultaneously. This came out of www.fastcompany.com. The author describes the rapid increase, rapid increase of the world's population over, of over 167% since 1960 and feeding them using current methods is killing the planet. He outlines alternatives, less, harf, less harmful environment, and methods to achieve the same goals. Feed the masses of hungry people. This is a good article to read if you're interested in feeding people without destroying the earth in the process. Something national governments need to get on board with. Renewable energy will cost the super wealthy, not the rest of us, new study finds, but Noah Leach. And this came out of www.sciencefocus.com. 
a sustainable energy future could be possible if the top 10% accept some losses. The author writes about how the IPCC climate report made it clear that urgent solutions are needed. The question is, who will pay for it? According to new research, the super wealthy in the Western world, two-thirds of the loss of money would affect the wealthiest 10% of the richest people's net worth. There's much more here, but the other side of the coin is, how will the world convince these super wealthy people to give up a portion of their net worth to save the planet? And we all know how, how tough of a fight that's going to be. Caught short, lack of recycled toilet paper in the UK fueling deforestation. Less office waste material during COVID has led big laboratory roll makers to cut amount of recycled paper in tissues, according to Consumer Body. Again, article out of theguardian.com, Environment, by James Tapper. This is a sort of funny story from the UK, but it also applies to North America. We also had our runs on toilet paper over here in 2020. And yes, there have been lots of stories of late about all the boreal forests in Canada being cut down to satisfy the world's demand for paper products. The world does use a lot of toilet paper. So I, do I think we could find something else more sustainable to use as TP? Yes, we can. But there are more important things going on right now, like sinking submersibles with millionaires on them, migrants taking over countries, and LGBTQ plus people kidnapping children to groom them as, groom them as pedophiles. Those are more important, apparently, to the general public than whether we have enough toilet paper or not. Montana Bridge collapses, carry, cause, collapse, cause, causing train carrying toxic materials to fall in the river. Officials shut down drinking water intakes downstream after train cars carrying asphalt and sulfur submerged in the Yellowstone River. So this was here in the United States. It came out of the Guardian U.S. News. A train bridge 177 kilometers northeast of Yellowstone National Park dropped into the Yellowstone River after bridge collapse under the weight of the train. This is Montana, where they don't believe in climate mitigation, and the likely cause of the bridge collapse was from erosion due to excess of flooding last year. Why was there excessive flooding? Climate change. But they want to admit that. Can Oregon help our grandchildren live, have a livable planet? If we are to have a livable planet going forward, we must take on this toxic, poisonous, and deadly industry, industry that is apparently run by psychopaths with little regard to human life. So this is out of Tom Hartman's Daily Take. And I got this last Monday, uh, and it's about how a county in Oregon is suing the fossil fuel industry over pollution and the lies that they use to promote it. The hope is that other government entities will also take up the challenge and make some headway. If not, the fossil fuel industry will kill a planet within this century. And then here's another article I got, more climate change, global warming stuff. A huge part of the country is no longer safe to live in. There are a lot of hard choices to be made by Martin Eddick from Medium.com. This short, ar short article puts this in perspective. I've been saying the same for a year now. More and more writers are coming to the same conclusion. Southwest part of the U.S. is quickly becoming uninhabitable for all but a few desert nomads now. As he says here, it is time to get out while you can. So I said something about this a year ago, and Al Gore in his thing 15 years ago all said that pretty soon the southwest part of the United States is going to become uninhabitable because of global warming. And, you know, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, 
Phoenix, Arizona is growing with people all wanting to move down there. But there's no water. I mean, go figure. Stupid humans. So he's, he's, he's also writing about this same thing. That it won't be much longer where the southwest part of the United States, northern New Mexico, northern Mexico, I mean, they're going to be uninhabitable except for folks who want to run around out there with camels and with uh, campus and, and uh, you know, light clothing on. And here I've got a political article for you from Scotland. SNP leader says general election win would be a mandate for independence push. Homsa Youssef's proposal in event of a victory in Scotland falls short of strategy backed by Nicola Sturgeon. This came out of the Guardian, Guardian.com politics by Libby Brooks, Scotland correspondent. And as I mentioned, it's from Scotland. And it's, you know, the big thing is I talked about a little bit about the Civil War, about how Scotland's toying with the idea of independence from Great Britain. So what I didn't mention before was after the last referendum vote, Westminster told Holyrood, no, you can't hold another referendum without our permission. That came across like a slap to the face to Scotland, and it didn't go over well with Nicola Sturgeon's SNP party and most of the Scottish people. Now the new SNP candidate is pushing again. I say go for it, but you got a heavy lift. The hardest part's convincing an overwhelming amount of the general public to support it first. Then give Westminster the finger. Get the people on board first before you stick it to them. Canada's got to, not say Canada, um, who is it? Northern Ireland, they got to do the same thing. And this one, another political article. Why are we letting the red state welfare oligarchs mooch off blue states? Red states are mooching off the blue states, using that essentially stolen tax money to reinvent the old confederacy. Own the libs, quote, and wage war on woke, quote, by Tom Hartman in his daily take. So his article goes on about the economic disparity between the red states and the blue states. The most important sentence in here is the one about how the red states are quickly separating themselves from the blue states and everything but federal subsidies. They're becoming another version of the Confederate States of America. I say let them go on their way, see how that works out for them. But when they come begging for help, the blue states get to say no unless they meet a lot of conditions. You know, like women's body, onto- body autonomy, voting rights, immigrant rights, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, I say let them go. What's, what's going to do? Here's, here's another article and my last one for the day. Do Republicans worship poverty, death, and disease? Is there something in the GOP's core beliefs and strategies that just inevitably leads to hating on their citizens and worshiping poverty, death, and disease? And this came out today from Tom Hartman. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote, to quote the late Paul Harvey, now the rest of the story from Tom Hartman's Daily Take. This article shows up on one, is uh, a follow-up on the one I just mentioned um, you know, just a minute ago about the red state and blue state welfare stuff. And this one here is about how evangelical Christians have been trying to take over the country for more than 50 years now. And they've managed to convince way too many Americans that their version of the United States should be the law of the land. And that's the big thing. And this goes back to what I was saying about the ADF. They are behind a lot of this big push. They, this group, it's a national group right now, and they are pushing really hard behind the scenes to make the United States a white Christian national theocracy and their version of Christianity being at the head, 
which is very, very dangerous for democracy here in the United States. So that's all the articles I have for you here this week. And I'm going to take my break, and I'll be back in a few minutes with my op-ed. So stand by, and I'll come right back at you here in a couple of minutes. I want to take this time to bring attention to my website on Crombieha at https colon forward slash forward slash 527.websitex5.me. In this website, I have a blog page where I post copies of my articles, teasers about my books, and a synopsis of the weekly podcast. Here in the website, you can also learn a little more about what An Krabiha means for a little bit of Irish culture and more about me in general. I also have links to this podcast, my Medium and Substack pages, an ad page for my books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. If you like my Medium.com and Substack.com articles, I have an option at the end of these articles to, and stories to leave a donation to my coffee fund and sign up for a subscription if you want. I also post a weekly newsletter as a follow-up to the podcast every week in both publications. I don't want anyone to feel obligated to financially support my work, which I why I offer everything for free. Medium does ask you to sign up to read the full pieces, though, even though I offer them for free, so just a heads up. Each article I write will be, avail- be available in the blog section of my website if you don't want to sign up for anything. I just don't have all the extra frills that you will find on medium.com and substack.com or access to all the other great writers there. But at least I give you a choice. If you enjoy reading, there are great choices to find out what you like most and dive in as much as you want. I hope to hear from you, whatever you decide. Welcome back to the second half of On Crombieha podcast. My focus this week is about climate change and how things need to change if life on this planet is going to survive. As I said last week, everyone across the planet is now aware that the ecosystem that every living thing on the planet needs to survive with every day is under attack by greedy capitalists. If you don't know about this, you must have been living completely off the grid for a very long time. For the rest of us, the fight to survive has increased exponentially and is getting worse every year. The most government leaders are wringing their hands and telling everyone we need to do something without any real solutions that the rest of the world can get behind. Certain nations are trying, but the efforts are too small and likely too late by now. Between tribal warfare, the greedy capitalists are trying to wrench every dollar, dinar, yen, yuan, franc, pound, and euro out of the planet in their quest to be the world's richest person. I include corporations in this personhood designation since the Supreme Court deemed them persons with Citizens United back in 2010 and the compounding wealth inequity gap because of all of that. With Citizens United in 2010 and the compounding wealth, they, there aren't enough humans standing up to do more than quantify about how we all must work together and try and mitigate all this before we pass the point of no return. Brazil is nearly there now, and the others aren't too far behind. So I've talked about Brazil in the past. They're close to 20% and 20 to 25% the tipping point for the Amazon rainforest. So I offer you a possible scenario. Maybe not too far from the truth, given recent news stories. What if the animal kingdom and the planet Earth, there are some who believe that the Earth is a sentient being, are starting to hit back at the humans? There have been multiple stories in the news of late about orcas ramming boats off South Africa, jamming rudders off Spain, and generally messing with small boats over there. There are a lot of people in the scientific community who swear that orcas, dolphins, porpoises, and other sea mammals are pretty smart. What if they're smarter than we think? 
What if the other sea mammals and land animals decide to fight back against the humans who are killing them off for food and profit? Humans will win, of course, because we outnumber them, outnumber them for now. Maybe they're just waiting for the next wave of massive human die-offs to whittle the numbers down before they get on under fray and whittle the human population down even more. Given how we are killing each other off with climate change-related weather disasters, tribal warfare, disease pandemics, and so on, maybe they're just biding their time and waiting like any other great hunter. There have been lots of fictional stories about the animals taking back the earth from the, from the humans. There was a TV series from 2015 to 2017 called Zoo. It lasted all three seasons, and I really liked it. The series was based on a novel by James Patterson of the same name. With the orcas making the news lately, and what if there were other anomalies happening in the animal kingdom that humans are too blind to because we got blinders on? Our blinders are made up of handheld technology and to focus on daily survival for the poorest of us. For morbidly rich, they insulate themselves from the world and the masses of poor people beneath them until something disrupts their inner lifestyles. Like a pod of orcas hurting a mega yacht? I have a fictional story to read for you today from a soon-to-be-famous fictional author. He plans to get into high gear writing even more fictional scary stories as soon as he retires from the U.S. Navy in a couple of years. Meanwhile, what he has published is available on Medium.com and Substack under Jack Finn's Tales of a Twisted Wood. This fictional story gives readers an idea of what might happen if the animal kingdom and the planet decide to defend themselves against greedy humans. The story is called A Shadow Upon the Shore. What the hell is that? Suarez leaned close to the window as she peered through the binoculars. Then she moved the binoculars away from her eyes, blinking as she tried to understand what she saw by Jack Finn. Tim Asher stood on the bridge of the sea spike and watched the small fleet of fishing boats fan out into a wide semicircle. His dark eyes squinted at the vessels, making out the forms racing on the decks to prepare the ships. Asher felt his stomach muscles tighten, a familiar feeling he got before combat. As a young Navy officer during Operation Iraqi Freedom, Asher had felt the sensation every time he piloted his riverine assault boat down the Euphrates. That was over 20 years ago. However, the same itch to charge into combat rolled in Asher's gut as his eyes studied the fishing vessels moving into formation off the coast of the Faroe Islands. How easy it would be for him to propel the sea spike forward, ramming the smaller ships, sending their cracked hulls to the bottom of the ocean before they began their hunt. You okay, Ash? A woman asked as a hand touched his arm. I'm just fine, Captain. Asher turned and nodded to the woman. She had her black OGI Ocean Garden International ball cap pulled low. The captain's brown eyes studied him carefully, and she ran her thin fingers along the smooth dark, chin of her, dark skin of her chin, a gesture Asher knew often signaled her concern. Ash, everyone on this ship wants to wants to stop what is about to happen, the captain's voice was calm, but her voice was steely. But OGI sent the sea spike here to observe and record this travesty for the world to see. I don't want a repeat of what happened with Yakamura. I'm the captain of this ship, and we will not be ramming anyone today. Is that clear? Crystal clear, Captain Danners. Asher nodded and smiled, though he bristled at the mention of his taking the initiative to ram the Japanese whaling ship Yakamura the previous year. The incident caused some bad press and legal issues for OGI. As a result, the organization had publicly demoted him from captaining any of their vessels. However, behind closed doors, several of the senior members of OGI applauded his actions. Captain Danners, 
on picking up transmissions from the ships. Edgar, the ship's radioman, held the headset close to his ears, buried under a head full of long, scraggly brown hair. Ships report that they have spotted a Grindabu near shore, a large pod of pilot whales. Jesus Christ, they think they are between three and 400 whales. Chen, get the drone in the air, Captain Danners directed, a young Asian man who frantically began typing on a laptop. I can see the pod, Gloria Soares, her sun-weathered framed by an OGA cap turned backward. She held a pair of binoculars to her eyes and pointed towards the island's rocky shoreline. Ships have received permission from someone called the Sisselman to, to move on the pod. Edgar squinted his eyes nearly shut as he listened intently. The Sisselman is the island's sheriff. Asher bit his lips as he watched the fishing vessels tighten their semicircle, preparing to drive the whales to- toward shore. I'm getting images from the drone, Chen waved to Captain Danners, who came up behind the drone operator and peered down at the screen. Lines of men stood on the beach. Danner saw some armed with long blunt gaffs used to hold the beached whales steady by their blowholes, while teams of men armed with Molson Tungari, a whaling knife utilized by the Faroese, pressed forward to sever the whale's spinal column. Chen swiveled the drone's camera to take in the ships beginning to move in on the whale pod. On deck, men raided weighted lines that they would throw into the water to prevent the whale's escape as the ships drove them inland. The image swiveled back to the beach. Danners felt bile rise in her gorge at the sight of the women and children cheerfully gathered on the beach behind the rows of men as if at a summer picnic. Get in close, Chen. Get me images of those kids. Danner tapped the screen and the drone operator nodded. We have to be careful, Captain. See that? Chen zoomed in on a bearded man in a red flannel shirt and rubber waders. He held a shotgun in his hand and scanned the sky. They've got guys like this all over the shore. They're looking for our drones. One of these guys nearly shot I Spy 2 out of the air last year. Okay, keep at a safe distance then, Danners nodded and patted the drone operator on his shoulder. The success of Operation Amber Shores will hinge on the video you shoot. Yes, Captain Chen nodded, not taking his eyes from the screen. Captain Danners, Asher steeled himself for the storm rod to come as he placed his hand on the ship's ignition. Request permission to intercept the ships. Stand down, Ash, Danner shot him a glare. I don't have time for your savior of the world crap right now. Look, I'm not saying we should ram their ships. Asher held out his hands in a conciliatory gesture. The hell we shouldn't, Gloria muttered without taking binoculars from her eyes as she watched the ships close in on the whale pod. I can run the seal spike between the pod and the ships, keep them from driving the whales ashore, Hasher gave her a small smile. No one will get hurt. If we block the ships, maybe we can force them to call Slipio Grandini and set the whales free and abort the hunt. You know goddamn well that if we get in the way of those boats, it's going to escalate into a fight. Captain Danners crossed the deck and got so close to his face that her ball cap nearly bumped his forehead. Well, then we'll give them a fight. Asher met her eyes and gave her a withering gaze. Every year, OGI sends a ship out here, and we watch those bastards drive whales and dolphins under the shore for their grindle drop, their whale hunts, and the slaughter whole, and slaughter whole pods. In 2021, they butchered over 1,400 in one day. Everyone cringes and cries at the pictures we bring back. Then life moves on till the next hunt. Ash, Captain Danner stepped back, 
caught off guard by the ship pilot's tirade. Do you know why they heard the whales here? Asher pointed out the window. The Faroese picked this spot because the ground is sandy, with no rocks or land shelves. So the whales' echolocation doesn't work. They swim blindly toward shore without knowing they are about to beach. The whales have no choice, had no chance. They have no chance except for us. Ash, you will stand down or get off my bridge. Do you understand me? Danner's voice trembled with rage as Asher stared back at her. What the hell is that? Suarez leaned closer to the window as she peered through the binoculars. Then she moved the binoculars away from her eyes, blinking as she tried to understand what she saw. Gloria, what is it? Danner's turned toward Suarez, alarmed by the normally calm woman's sudden change in demeanor. Oh my God! Suarez dropped her hands to her sides, blacking away from the window in horror, eyes fixed on the sea. God damn it, Gloria, what? Danner's voice trailed off as she looked out the window. When the captain turned back to Asher, her eyes were wide and frightened. Ash, get us out of here. Get us out of here right now. Asher looked down at Chen's computer screen as the drone operator gasped in horror. Ship pilot felt a cold chill of fear course through his body as he stared at the massive wave that rose out of the ocean and raced toward the tiny island at the speed of a locomotive. Ash, Captain Danners, looked at the ship pilot, her face a mask of fear, panic, and confusion. Asher ran to the ship's control panel and punched the ignition button, bringing the engines roaring to life. As the sea spike, sea spike lurched, to, lurched to life, Asher turned the wheel hard, steering the ship directly towards the giant wave. Suarez, get on the radar and tell me what you see. Asher pointed the sea spike directly at the rogue wave and gunned the engines to full speed. He flicked on the shipboard communication system. All hands, all hands, get below decks and seal the hatches. Ash, what are you doing? You're heading right for the wave. Danners tried to grab his wheel from the steering controls, but Asher held firm and looked sidelong at her. Our only chance is to reach that wave and push over the top before it crests. Asher stared forward as the immense wave filled the window before them, racing toward them as the ship charged toward it. The wave rose so high that it cast a shadow on the shoreline. Suarez, speak to me. What are you seeing? This can't be right, Suarez tapped the radar screen. Radar says it's over 250 meters tall, over 50 stories high. That's impossible. Danners ran over to look at the screen and shook her head in disbelief. This can't be. The largest rogue wave ever recorded was 35 meters high. Well, there she is, Asher pointed to the towering wall of water before them. Believe it or not, we're, gonna, we're about to hit her. As the wall of water blocked out the view of the sky, Captain Danners keyed the shipboard communication system to life again. All hands, all hands donned life jackets and braced for impact. On the bridge, they could hear a cheer from the crew, and Danners looked questioningly at Asher as she slipped an orange life jacket over her head and secured it place. They think we're about to ram the Faroese ships, Asher smiled without taking his eye from the wave. Ash, where's your life vest? Danner stared at the, at the ship pilot as a smile crept across his face. A life jacket is not going to make a difference here, Asher. Asher brief, glanced briefly at Danner's, then back at the wave. The bridge crew stood in silence, the whine of the engines and the roar of the approaching wave, the only sound. Impacted 200 feet, Suarez's eyes stared him, blinking at the radar, 175. Ash, will we make it to the top of the wave? Danner spoke so low that the others in the bridge could not hear. Asher did not respond, but the look on his face told her all she needed to know. 150, Suarez licked lips with dry fear. 100 feet. Come on, baby, show me what you got. Asher pushed the sea spikes engines to their maximum, and the whole ship shuddered with the effort. 50 feet. Brace for impact, Captain Danner's stated yourself on a control panel as the roar of the wave became deafening. Asher watched as the 
wave sprayed water over the pointed bow of the sea spike, gritting his teeth in expectation of the bone-jarring impact of the rogue wave. Dark ocean waters cascaded down the windows of the bridge, obscuring their view and blotting out the sun. The sea spike shook violently, and the muscles of Asher's arms strained to hold the helm. The ship's steering wheel steady on its course. Water beat down the steel hull of the sea spike like thousands of pounding fish. Asher steeled himself for the groaning crack of the ship's spine and the rapid descent into a watery grave that would follow. There were no heroic statements or acts of self-sacrificing bravery like in the movies, just the unrelenting terror of impending death. He resisted the urge, he resisted the urge to close his eyes as the ship struggled against the colossal wave, intent on witnessing the final moments of his life. The strain on the helm suddenly slackened, and bright sunlight streamed through the sea spikes' bridge windows, and a gasp of surprise rippled through the compartment. The violent rocking of the ship ceased, and the ship sailed peacefully onto the calm, flat sea that lay in front of them. Asher cut the power down to one quarter to prevent the overtaxed engines from giving out. He was too stunned to speak. Are we dead? Suarez stared from face to face in utter confusion. Ask what just happened? Captain Danis let out a breath. She only just realized she was holding in. I don't know. Asher could not hide his bewilderment. We made it through the wave. I don't know how, but we did. Captain Danners. Chen looked queasy as he stared at his computer screen. Come look at this. The bridge crew gathered around the drone operator and watched the footage transmitted by the iSpy drone flying high above the beachhead. The feral fishermen's small wooden and fiberglass boats fled from the massive wave, desperately trying to make it to shore. While on the beach, men, women, and children squirreled in a mad panic to get to high ground. The crew watched, riveted to the screen, as the shadow of the giant wave reached past the fleeing people on the beach to the ridgeline above. Then the wave's crest crashed downward, shattering the small boats and engulfing the people on the beach. Those at the forefront of the fleeing mob appeared to be dragged into the receding tide as if held by watery hands. As quickly as the wave ahead appeared, it was gone. The waters pulled back from the far reaches of the beach. Not a single person, living or otherwise, remained on the beach. All that remained of the fishing vessels was the floats of a jetsam created by their destruction. Chen peered close at the screen and pointed at the small bobbing orb. There are people in the water. Danner stared at the screen as the drone panned in, in excruciating close to the panicked face of a bearded man gasping for air and attempting to stay above water. Ash, turn around. This has become a rescue operation. Danner struggled to keep her voice sounding calm. Then Suarez gasped and brought her hand to her mouth. Danner's returned her gaze to the screen as the pot of whales circled the bobbing forms in the water. The shimmering graybacks of the whales dipped below the water, then the heads of the flailing swimmers were abruptly dipped from sight, pulling into the blue waters of the sea. The struggling swimmers disappeared one by one beneath the ocean surface, none re-emerging. They reminded Danners of the whack-a-mole game at the Chicago's Fair. One moment the smiling plastic mole heads wouldn't be, would be there, the next they would disappear into their holes. Within moments, the ocean's surface was calm, the current gently pushing the remains of the wrecked ships toward shore. There were no bodies and no desperate swimmers. The graybacks of the whales crested the surface one last time as the pod headed back out to sea. Dr. Olmsford, in your expert opinion, what would have caused a rogue wave the size of the Faro wave? Dietrich Wyman, chairman of the European Commission on Sea Safety, stared at the diminutive bald scientist. 
Dr. Olmford studied the eight-member commission in their high-backed leather chairs, the clicking and whir of the news cameras behind him, prepared to capture the expert's words. A rogue wave can be caused by any number of factors, most commonly modulation instability in the sea space, as well as usual high winds and ocean currents. Which caused this specific wave? Dietrich slid the glasses off his face and placed them on the table before him. According to the data provided by the sea spike, the Faraway's sole survivor, Dr. Olmsford looked to the stoic forms of Tim Asher and Jess Danner sitting beside him. None of these conditions existed at the time of the wave. The sea spike recorded the wave to be over 250 meters. Freya Ployen, the commissioner from Denmark, folded her arms across her chest and pinched her face into a sour expression. Something we can all agree on is an impossibility, so I find any data retrieved from the OGI vessel wholly unreliable. Danner stared at the commissioner with cold eyes and showed remarkable strain in Asher's opinion. My team has checked the instruments on the sea spike quite thoroughly, and I can assure you we found no irregularities or deficiency in the equipment. Dr. Olmsford nodded to Danners, eliciting a tight-lipped smile from the woman. Commissioner Ployen, the gray-haired commissioner from Belgium, leaned forward and turned to, to face the scowling woman. Dr. Olmsford's statements today is consistent with what oceanographic centers across the EU have testified to this commission. At the time of the Faroe wave, there were no conditions that, to our knowledge, could cause this phenomenon present in the waters around the islands at the time of the incident. Yet over 2,000 innocent people are dead, Ployan stared coldly at Asher as he shook his head at her words. Mr. Asher, is there something you would like to say? Asher looked at Danners, who gave him a warning look and a slightly perceptible shake of the head. The ship pilot smiled broadly at the captain, then loosening his tie, turned to address the commission. Yes, I have testimony to contribute to the record. And what is that, Mr. Asher? The commissioner from Sweden stared at Asher with suspicion in his blue eyes. Before Mr. Asher provides his statement, the commissioner from UK, a middle-aged man with graying red hair, leaned forward and placed his hands on the table. I would like to commend Mr. Asher and Captain Donners on, Danners on this incredible seamanship for the sea spike to survive this catastrophe. Danners nodded appreciatively, but Asher smiled and shook his head. Our survival had nothing to do with seamanship or good fortune. By all rights, we should have been sunk with all the rest of the vessels. The wave allowed us to pass through it unharmed. Behind Asher, murmurs rippled through the assembly, assembled reporters and observers. Cameras clicked furiously as the proceedings slipped from the mundane to the sensational with this outlandish comment. Dietrich closed his eyes in annoyance and rubbed the bridge of his nose with his stomach forefinger as the commissioners exchanged uncertain glances. Only the commissioner from Denmark, a constant critic of OGI actions, seemed amused by the ship's pilot's apparent divergence from sanity. Are we to believe the Faroe Wave had the ability to think, control its actions? Ployan smirked at Asher, but her eyes were as cold as sharks. No, Asher shook his head and laughed mirthlessly. No, I'm not saying the Wave was capable of thought. Pl then please, clarify your statement. Ployan leaned back in her chair, steepled her fingers, elbows resting on the armrest. I don't know if our cruelty as a species has awakened some summary sea god or anger of the earth itself. For over 1,500 years, the people of the Faroe Islands have methodically butchered whales and dolphins, scientifically proven sentient beings with wanton, heartless brutality. Asher met the eyes of each commissioner. What happened that day was not a scientific event. It was a preternatural rebalancing of the scales. We act as if every living thing on earth is here for our personal use as a species. We think we can just pillage and pollute the world's oceans with no consequence. 
The people of the Faroe Islands systematically executed living, thinking beings that possessed at least as much right to the world as they had. The wave was not science. It was the will of this planet to bring humans down a notch to teach us a lesson, to send us a warning. Commissioner Ployan scoffed out loud and waved her hand dismissively at Asher. He turned his dark eyes toward the commissioner, and mark my words, this is only the beginning. And that's all I have for this week. I hope I've enlightened you a little bit with my choice of stories and thoughts. And I'm going to close out this show with a challenge like I do every week. I want you to examine what you do for the world. Do you recycle? Do you do anything at all in your life to try and mitigate the climate changes in your neighborhood, in your area, wherever you live? Are you, do you even promote it? I mean, are, do you even care? So that's the question of the day. What do you what do you care about climate change? Because it's here. There's no, there's no denying it anymore. So what can you do in your own personal life to do something about it? I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it, and that you'll return again for another episode of On Crombieha. Feel free to share this with your friends and relations. The more, the merrier. Each podcast episode will be free and can be found on many different platforms now, although some may have advertisements. Unfortunately, I have no control over that. Search for On Crombieha podcast or under my name, T-O-D-O-M-H-N-A-I-L-L, in your favorite app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree together during our time together. As a Shahe, I want to continue to travel to your digital village every week to bring you some news from the outside world, or maybe a story or two that may bring you a smile or make you think for a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your troubles be less and your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door. Schlangafoil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.